Well, we now come to the time of our worship service where we worship God through the study of His Word. And this morning, we're going to continue our study in the one another's as we look at the one another of bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens, and uh, we'll find that in Galatians chapter 6. We're, uh, so we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 6, but we'll start reading from Galatians 5.25 for a bit of context. Okay, so we'll start reading at Galatians 5.25 for some context. Again, the Apostle Paul writes this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Let's pray again. Father, pray that you would be honored and glorified as we worship you through your word. Uh, we pray that uh, you would give me the, the words to speak so that you may be glorified. Help us, Lord, to have ears to hear so that we might uh, live out your truth in our lives. In your sons, and we pray. Amen. Well, at any retail store where they sell heavy items to their customers, employees are routinely taught and retaught the importance of proper technique when it comes to handling heavy objects. As many of you know, you might be able to get away with lifting heavy objects with improper technique for a short amount of time, but eventually you're going to get hurt. Now, some of the brainier among us are probably going to risk uh, the transportation and moving of he heavy objects because we're going to use physics. Or we'll use physics. We'll use the inclined plane to reduce how much force we need to use to move this object. Right? But eventually, eventually, there's going to be a time where we cannot safely lift or move heavy objects on our own. And we're going to need some help. We might try to live the Christian life on our own. But God has made it clear in His Word that we need fellow believers in our lives. And it's for this reason, Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 4-5, that we have many members in one body with different functions. Yet, we are also one body in Christ. Individually, members of one another. We belong to one another, just as the different members in our bodies, though they have different functions, work together to make up who we are as a person. Now, our unity in Christ is not like a cute little club that we get to be a part of, but it is a spiritual reality that signifies that we have all been saved by God's grace through faith, which He also, by the way, gives to us graciously. And as a result of our salvation, we who believe are all children of God and co-heirs with Jesus. And so if we're all part of God's family, and if we are all here to work together to glorify God here on this earth, then we ought to have a genuine concern for one another. And this genuine concern for others can make us make some of us anyway, uncomfortable at times. 
Right? We don't really like letting people know about some of the details in our lives, let alone asking them about some of the details in their lives. Now, I understand that some of you may feel uncomfortable reaching out to others. But life in the body, life in the body does not give us an excuse to ignore God's commands for us to, or for us to bear one another's burdens. We all have God-ordained responsibilities that we must obey as members of the body. And so our aim this morning is to examine three of those responsibilities as we see three responsibilities that spirit-filled Christians must fulfill in their lives. Three responsibilities that spirit-filled Christians must fulfill in their lives. The first responsibility that spirit-filled Christians must fulfill in their lives is the responsibility to restore others. The responsibility to restore others. Again, we're going to start with a little bit of context here. So uh, Galatians 5, 25 to 26 reads this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. A natural human tendency that we may have in our lives is just a desire to be well thought of by others. And as a result, some of us, either consciously or unconsciously, will determine how our lives are going at any given moment through a comparison with our peers. With a comparison to our peers. If they surpass us, there can be a desire to challenge them, to prove that we are not inferior. And there can be envy as well as what we want others have been given by God. And for this reason, some of us may walk around feeling discouraged, discontented, as we see others passing us up, obtaining what we wish to obtain, whether it be, whether it be status, whether it be relationships, or even possessions. But the attitude of those who walk by the Spirit should not be marked by this pride or envy. And we are not to become boastful or, or, or to challenge one another. We sh- uh, you know, the attitude that we have should not be determined by how we feel about ourselves, in, uh, because of how we stack up against other people. The attitude Christians ought to have towards one another ought to be one of love and care. And therefore, Paul grabs our attention and he writes, uh, he writes, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. So even though we may not all feel the temptation to play the comparison game uh, or to envy others. There certainly can be a hesitancy to help those who are stuck in sin. It's not like we have a malicious desire to see other people fail. It can just feel uncomfortable to be vulnerable with others and, and allow them to be vulnerable with us. But notice, however, that Paul begins his command for us to restore one another in a a very interesting way. He doesn't have a specific incident of sin in his mind, but he's preparing his readers for a future case in which they eventually learn of someone who 
is caught in a, in a form of trespass. And it doesn't matter who this person is, whether they are of great reputation or of poor reputation, those who are spiritual ought to restore a fellow believer caught in trespass. Right? He says, even if anyone, anyone, right? it doesn't matter whether it's Pastor Henry, Pastor Ray, myself, or any, anyone else, we all have this responsibility if we catch anyone or we observe anyone caught in trespass to go after them in love and to restore them. Now, you'll notice that Paul, he uses that word trespass here. He knows the Greek word for sin. So he could have said sin. He could have said transgression. He could have used any of the other synonyms there, the other words there for sin that exist. But he specifically uses the word trespass here to describe the kind of sin that a believer might be caught in. Back in verse 25, the phrase, walk by the Spirit, could also be translated as keep in step with the Spirit, or follow the Spirit. Uh, If you will, it's kind of like a, a spiritual follow the leader. Where he goes, you go. You don't go to the left, you don't go to the right, you keep right in step with him. You keep your footsteps right in step with him. And the word trespass here in verse 1 has this idea of making a false step. Right? So instead of following the leader exactly, you take a false step. If, if you want to think about it another way, it's kind of like when you're playing Simon Says with kids. Right? And you give the commands out really, really fast. And then before you know it, you don't say Simon Says, but some kid automatically moves and does what you, what you just said to do. Right? That's a false step. That's a trespass. A trespass is a sinful act that is equivalent to stumbling or falling. It's an accident. You didn't mean to do it. There's no premeditation or wrestling with whether to sin or not to sin before that sin was committed. This is a description of a sin that results from someone uh, failing to be on guard against sin. Or perhaps thinking that they're strong enough on their own to overcome temptation. Even though this sin is unintentional, what you'll notice is that it is still serious to God. Because unintentional sin is still sin. All sin is rebellion against God. And so even if it is unintentional, even if it is a trespass, a tripping up, we still are responsible before God to confess those to Him. We must repent of those sins. For example... For example, someone may have an unexpected outburst of anger when someone crashes into their car. But this does not mean, this does not mean they are not responsible for their outburst of anger. They must still repent of it. They must still seek forgiveness for, uh, for, for those whom the outburst of anger affected. It might seem small to us, perhaps even justifiable in the moment. But sin is still sin to God. Sin is still sin to God. And so, these are sins that must be confessed. We don't let any of them slide. God doesn't let any of them slide, so we must deal with them. But when someone is caught in trespass and they, uh, and, and they are confronted about and they realize that they need help, but they feel like they can't get help, they can't do anything about it, they might feel really guilty. And the guilt that may follow such a sin could leave someone frustrated, demoralized, and greatly discouraged. And it's for this reason. Paul tells believers that those who are spiritual should restore such a person. 
Uh, another way to think about restoration can be understood uh, is uh, can, can be understood in the imagery of repairing a net. Right? We're repairing them uh, into uh, full function. Uh, or we, uh, if uh, there's a broken relationship, we're, we're returning them to right relationship with God and with fellow church members. And this requires true repentance on the part of the one who sinned. And follow-up from fellow Christians, that's all of us, or to help them understand what repentance ought to look like. We have to help people know what repentance looks like sometimes so that they can once again be restored to uh, full function within the body or to be pure and useful to the church body. Now, I know that some of you, you're probably thinking, you who are spiritual do this? <laughs> I am glad I'm not considered one of the spiritual people in this church. We'll leave that to the, to the church leaders. I don't want to have to do that. Not so fast. Right? Not so fast. Who are the ones who are spiritual? Take a peek back up at verse 25. Right? If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Every single Christian who has the fruit of the Spirit, and that's everyone, Everyone who has the fruit of the Spirit lives by the Spirit, walks by the Spirit. We're all the spiritual ones. Every single Christian is responsible to restore those who are caught in trespasses. There are no excuses. There are no loopholes. Anyone who calls themselves a Christian is responsible to restore those who are genuinely repentant over their sins to fellowship within the body. And that means if someone has sinned against you, you do not have the right to hold their sin up against them, or up over them. You don't have the right to withhold forgiveness, to withhold love. Because every Christian within the body has the responsibility to restore a believer caught in trespasses, a believer caught in sin. We don't get to stand off to the side and say, I am glad I'm not that person, or say, good, that's what you get. Now please do not mistake what I am saying as a free pass for all who commit unintentional sin to experience, uh, uh, to experience consequences for, for, for their sins. They don't, no one gets off the hook. Okay? Forgiving someone and restoring them to fellowship does not mean that uh, there are absolutely no consequences to sin. But even if, even if there are rightful consequences for sin, they're not vindictive. They're not retaliatory. They don't cross the line. But they are as fair as possible. Why? Because we understand that this is the way that God is with us. We understand this is the way that God is with us. He does not go overboard when He disciplines us. His discipline is never separated from His love, mercy, and grace. Okay, so we're, we are talking about God's discipline here. That is different from His judgment. But His discipline, His discipline is never separate. It's never, uh, love, mercy, and grace are never absent from His discipline. They're all intertwined into His discipline. And so as we model God's forgiveness to others, the, the forgiveness that we've experienced ourselves to others, we recognize the same thing. That restoration of a sinning believer should not be withheld if that believer is truly repentant. And they want to change. But, at the same time, sometimes consequences, such as building up trust again, restriction of ministry, 
repairing the damage that was done, some of those consequences may still exist. Now, as we continue on in verse 1, okay, verse 1 is super packed, so we're continuing on in verse 1. When we restore such believers, we are to do so in a spirit of gentleness. For those of you who are parents or grandparents, or for those of you who work with children or students in some capacity, which is easier? Which is easier? Calmly pulling the child aside to explain to them what they did wrong, what God expects of them, and how they can do better next time, or yelling at them in anger to quickly put an end to their unwanted behavior. Which is easier? Yelling in anger. But if you remember, if you remember the fruit of the Spirit, or some of the fruits of the Spirit, particularly gentleness or meekness, what we understand is that when we correct in a spirit of gentleness, right, that's power under control. Gentleness is power under control. It's not that you're a pushover. It's not like you're uh, a mat that people can walk on. But you're exercising control over your passions. The aspect of the fruit of the Spirit helps us show the one who has sinned the severity of their sin, the importance of their sin, but also the immense mercy and grace of our God. So when we demonstrate when we demonstrate this restoration in a, in a spirit of gentleness, we show them the immense mercy and grace of our Lord. In 2 Corinthians 2.7, Paul follows up on a situation in the Corinthian church in which he had to strongly correct a member of the church, and he tells the church that they should forgive and comfort him, lest the man corrected be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15, Paul notes that church discipline ought to take place for those who do not obey instructions, or the instructions from the Lord, so that they'll feel the consequences of, uh, so that the person will feel the consequences of his rebellion, yet, yet, the person is not to be treated as an enemy, but what? Admonish him as a brother. When we remember that the one who is caught in trespass is part of our spiritual family, we also remember that were it not for the grace of God towards us, we would likely sin in a similar way. As we restore others from their trespasses, Paul also reminds believers that we are to watch after ourselves, to make sure that we are not tempted Uh, that we will not be tempted by a similar sin in the restoration process. While we're in the process of helping someone learn what it looks like to repent of sin and put off the old self and put on the new self, it is entirely possible that we might be tempted to, to engage in that sin ourselves. And as a result, Paul reminds us that we are not impervious to similar temptations. Just because you've been there before and you've, done, and you've conquered it before doesn't mean that you're immune from temptation. In 1 Corinthians 10.12, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they ought to be mindful of such self-confidence so that they will not let their guard down and fall into the same sin as those who had gone before them. Jesus notes in Matthew 7, 3-5, that those of us who try to lovingly confront others over their sin in in an attempt to help them deal with their sins could, in fact, be 
guilty of those sins ourselves. Right? And so before and as we are ministering to other people caught in trespass, we are to have a continual and diligent attentiveness to our own sins. We are to check to see if we have logs in our own eyes before we go about pointing out specks in other people's eyes. So you see, this responsibility that spirit-filled Christians have to restore believers who are caught in sin uh, is an important responsibility that none of us can take for granted or ignore. While it's not our responsibility to constantly police people over potential sin that we see in their lives, we should also not hesitate to graciously and gently point out the sin that we see in a fellow Christian's life. While we might chalk it up to their personality and how they are, what we have to remember is that sin is still sin before God. Yes, we have to consider when, where, and how we can appropriately and lovingly bring up that sin to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but our love for them should drive us to gently bring their sin to their attention so that they may be restored to right relationship with God and others in the church, even if it is uncomfortable for us, even if it puts us at risk of being temporarily alienated from them. We do this because we love them. We do this because we love our Lord and we want to honor Him. And we want our friends to do the same. And that brings us to the second responsibility that Spirit-filled Christians must fulfill in their lives. And that is the responsibility to bear one another's burdens. The responsibility to bear one another's burdens. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Paul tells us that the reason why we are to be involved with one another's lives is because we are called and we're commanded, this is a command, to bear one another's burdens. Now the burdens that Paul has in mind are not loads or weights that we can carry ourselves, but are large, heavy loads that are too difficult to manage on our own. And these are the kinds of loads where you kind of start trying to put it on your shoulders, you're trying to start lifting it, and then you realize, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I can't do this. And it comes crashing on the floor. These are the kinds of loads that threaten to do us harm if we try and move them ourselves. In, in a physical sense, right, um, if, you wanna, if you want to get a picture of what these loads might look like, just think about those large boxes of furniture at Costco or Ikea. They have that team lift symbol on the box because that what they want you to know is that this thing is heavy. So don't try and lift this on your own. And if you do try and lift this on your own, you can't sue us because we told you this is heavy. That's the large load that we're kind of thinking of. In a spiritual sense, these burdens that we are to help others bear are burdens related to those trespasses. See, even if it is unintentional sin, it doesn't mean that people don't need help getting out from under them. It doesn't mean that people don't need help to get out from under their trespasses. Some trespasses are huge. They're huge. And we can't deal with it on our own. We need some help. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a person, that a Christian who does not have the help of other Christians to bear their burdens are excused from personal responsibility over sin. Right? Just because 
No, no one told me I had an anger problem. No one told me I had an impatience problem. So I am not responsible for this, for this sin in my life. No one told me. No one bore my burdens. So help me bear my burdens. So I'm good, right? God, you understand? No, right? that's not that's not at all what we're saying here. Right? We all have a personal responsibility for our own sins. Any sins that we commit, any sins that we commit, are are a result of our sinful hearts responding sinfully to the world around us. Our circumstances do not cause us to sin. Our circumstances reveal what is already within our hearts. However, sometimes we are blind to our own sins and we need help from others to realize when we've been caught up in our own sins. In 2 Peter 1, 5-9, Peter reminds his readers of the qualities that belong to those who've been saved by God's grace as they've repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as you can see on the screen, the qualities are many. We ought to have, Christians uh, ought to be marked by moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These qualities are to be increasing in our lives as we continue to grow in Christ. But notice what Peter also says. If these qualities are lacking in our lives, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Many of us are extremely thankful to the Lord for the salvation that we've been given. We're extremely thankful for the salvation we've been given. We, we do not hesitate to say that we love God. We do not hesitate to worship Him when it's time to sing songs together. But, though we are thankful for our salvation, though we recognize that our salvation is real and it does something in our lives, it is not at all difficult for Christians to succumb to bad thinking. That essentially, despite our, despite our insistence that we love God, that, uh, that forgets Christ. We, we essentially forget Christ, even though we say we love Him. We, we forget what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in our lives when He saved us from our sins. It's not at all difficult for us to forget. You see, when our circumstances make our lives Difficult, frustrating, boring, full of worry, and so on. It is far easier for us to see Christ through our circumstances rather than to see Christ sovereign in our circumstances. And when you see Christ through your circumstances, all you see is the haze that forms because of your circumstances. You don't have a clear view of Christ. You just see Him through your circumstances. And it's easy for you to be discouraged. Because at at that point, what's bigger? Christ or your circumstances? Your circumstances. He becomes much smaller. It's like you're looking at Him through the lens of a telescope. He's just far, far away. You can't see Him. There's a lot of stuff in the way. However, what we have to remember 
is that we're not seeing Christ from far, far away. He's not some small object far off into the, into the distance. Rather, what we would want to recognize is that Christ is sovereign in our circumstances. He is big, bigger than our circumstances. It's for this reason. It's for this reason that we need fellow Christians in the church to come alongside us. Not only to reveal our sins to us, that we can address those sins, but also so that they can point us back to the truths that we so easily forget in our circumstances. We need them to help us remember that our God is not a small God. We do not worship an impotent God. We worship a God who is all-powerful. He actually is in sovereign control. Things have not gotten out of control for him. He's not suddenly lost control of the car. He knows exactly what he's doing. Which means that even if, even if your circumstances bring about pain and sorrow, that the Lord has graciously, sovereignly allowed that into your life, so that you might learn from it, so that you might grow by it, so that after you've suffered for a little while, you too may go and comfort others. We have to remember how big our God is in our circumstances. And as we take on this responsibility to bear one another's burdens, those of us who help one another, we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ brings us back to the issue of love. In Galatians 5.14, Paul summarizes the law given to Moses in the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul is not going rogue here when he says that all of the law is summarized in, in love for neighbors. But he's actually echoing the words of Jesus back in Matthew 22.37-40 when he tells the lawyer that the greatest commandment in the law is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, commandment 1b, is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other parts of Scripture, Jesus specifically says in John 13, 34 and John 15, 12, that his commandment to his disciples is that they love one another. Right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, Jesus certainly taught more than just that we ought to love one another in this life. There are other commandments, there are other aspects to the law of Christ, but it's clear that the love for others, it's clear that love for others rather than love for self is a common theme, it's a common thread that can be traced through all of Jesus' teaching. So returning to Galatians 6, when we show care for one another by restoring them to right fellowship and bearing their, their burdens, this is seen as obedience to Jesus' command to love others. Thus, anyone who takes part in these responsibilities fulfills the law of Christ. And that's important for Christians to think about because verse 3 of Galatians 6 reads this, For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is not talking about, uh, this is not talking about your self-esteem. Um, and, and that uh, you know you're um, that you shouldn't have confidence 
in your position before the Lord, right? But what we're talking about here is a little bit of pride. When you first read verse 3, you're probably wondering, how does this even relate to verse 2? It just really seems out of place. However, verse 3 is a warning. It's a warning to those who think that the command to bear one another's burdens, which also includes the command to restore people who are caught in trespasses, believers who are caught in trespasses, that this command doesn't apply to them. Verse 3 warns against spiritual pride for those who feel like it's not worth the time. It's not worth the energy or the effort to participate in this essential part of church life because, frankly... Bearing one another's burdens? It's beneath me. It's beneath me. It's, it's not something that I have to do. Right? I'll leave that for the other people in the church. But this is beneath me. I've got other things to attend to. And Paul warns that if you think that you're something, right? if you think that you're something so that you don't have to obey God's commands, um, you know, if you think that you're more mature than other people, if you think that you know better than other people do, uh, if you think that the obedience to all that all the clear commands that God has given in scriptures do not apply to you, then you're self-deceived in your pride. If you think that you can excuse yourself from obeying one aspect of, the, uh, of God's word, um, and you, know, you just get to pick and choose where you'll be faithful and where you'll be obedient, that's pride. That's pride. If you think you're something... If you think that church is about you and that it caters to you and that you don't need to serve or, or care for others, that's pride. And Paul's warning against that pride. And this ministry that Paul calls us to, it's really, it's really actually not that difficult to do. Because think about this. Even if, even if you are only capable of ministering to one person in the church you would fulfill your responsibility to obey Christ's command in the church when you bear the burdens of others. Just one. One act of obedience. And you, know, you have to continue to do it, right? But one act of obedience would be fulfilling the law of Christ. And if you feel like you cannot do this for others in the church because you work and you have a family, that doesn't mean you're exempt either. God's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize that you worked 40 plus hours a week and that you also had a lot of kids that I gave you, by the way. Um, he, he's, not, he's not saying like, oh, well, okay, you get an excuse for that. Do you practice? Do you practice bearing one another's burdens with your family? With your family? Or do you, do you lovingly Call out your spouse when they're stuck in sin. When they're stuck in their anxiety and in their worry or in their frustration or in their pride. Do you gently, lovingly call them out and call them up to do what God wants them to do? To have the mindset that God wants them to have? Do you take the time to get on eye level with your children? To enter into their worlds? to bear their burdens, to try and come to a good understanding of their worries, of their sin struggles. Even if the things that they care about are seemingly insignificant to you, do you take the time to care for them and help them, shepherd them in those things? 
if you're an older saint in the church and you can't do as much as you used to, do you at least try to help one person grow more in Christ-likeness? It could be passing conversations. It could be a discipleship relationship if you have the time. But one person. If you're one of the students in the church and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a genuine believer, do you at least try to encourage and pray for believers around you who are struggling? They could be your friends, but they could also be uncles and aunties at church. The people that we see in the bulletin who need prayer. If you're a student in the church and you don't know how you can serve, you can serve in those ways. Right? Maybe you can't drive, maybe you can't... Um, you don't have money, but you can pray. Everyone has a responsibility in the church to bear one another's burdens. It's because everyone around us in our church family can get tripped up by sin. The author of Hebrews notes this in Hebrews 12.1 when he describes sin as that which so easily entangles us. But, Because of the hope that we have before us. That Christ is coming again to bring us into glory with Him. And because of the faithful testimony that we have of the saints who have gone before us. Who remind us that what we do is not in vain. Because of that, we lay aside the burdens and the sins that so easily entangle us so that we can pursue more of Christ. And as we do so... It's not just about us. We take everyone around us with us. We put our arms around those around us and we move forward. We say, hey, come follow me as I follow Christ. Let's go. And we do this because we we want to show the world that Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection does something. And the reason why most people don't have a positive view of Christianity is because a lot of us, a lot of Christians in the, in, in the eye of the media, show that, Christ, that, that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection does nothing. Have you ever thought about that? Or why do people not have a good opinion of Christians? It's because we prove by looking exactly like the world and being caught up in the same sins that they're caught up in that Jesus' death on the cross did not defeat sin. That's what we show. That's what we demonstrate. But when we actually live like the gospel does something in our lives, when we refuse to allow sin to define us and to continue to define us, and we put on righteousness, and we show them, no, Christ did do something on the cross. He did do something when He rose from the grave. I am not who I used to be. Rather, I am a new creation in Christ. We do this so that we can prove to the world that the gospel works and that we're living proof of it. So, do not be self-deceived and think that this responsibility to bear one of those burdens does not apply to you. We all have a part to play because we're all members of the body. We're all part of another, of one another. We all have our individual functions, yes, but we operate together as a unit 
No one is more important than the other. Whether you serve in a ministry that gives you a title, or if you're just a faithful member who attends and you minister to whoever is around you to the best of your ability, with whatever you have, we all have an important function in how our church grows and how our church proclaims the gospel to the people in our community. And that leads us to the third responsibility that uh, spirit-filled Christians must fulfill in, in their lives, and that is the responsibility to walk faithfully. The responsibility to walk faithfully. Verse 4. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. So, in order to make sure that we are not those who are self-deceived in their salvation, thinking that we're saved, but are instead trying to save ourselves through our works, Paul reminds believers that each one of us is to examine our own works, to test the validity of our faith. The word examine in the Greek uh, is, is a word commonly used to test a precious metal, like silver or gold, to determine its value. To see whether, do I have, uh, do I have real gold here, or do I have fool's gold here? Do I have pure silver, or is, there, or is this silver loaded with impurities? We're going to test it, and we're going to put it to the flame to see what it's worth. Every Christian ought to examine our works to see whether our faith is genuine, or if it's just faith in disguise. And that's what James addresses in James 2.17 to 18, when he says that faith without works is dead. He says, even so, if it has no works, uh, faith, uh, sorry, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But some may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James is not telling us that we can earn our salvation through good works, but that the genuineness of our salvation is proved through good works. You see, genuine faith will always, will always evidence itself in good works. Okay, genuine faith will always evidence itself in good, in good works. However, the opposite is not, is, is not true. Okay? It doesn't mean that good works always proves genuine faith. Okay? Good works does not always prove genuine faith. And that's the reason why, whenever we're trying to determine whether someone is truly saved or not, we, we don't just look at what they do. Because anyone can be good for a time, right? I can behave for five minutes. I can make you look like I'm a, I mean, I can make it look like I'm a Christian for five minutes, for half an hour, for even two and a half hours on a Sunday. Right? I can say all the right things. I can do all the right things, right? I can help stack the chairs. I can help clean the chairs. I can do all those things and look like a faithful Christian, but in the rest of my life, not be a Christian. Right? So we don't look at the works for that. Right? We don't look at, at works for that. But the reason why works proves or works are evidence of a genuine faith is because what we believe and what we say we believe it influences how we act. So if we're if if we are uh, if we have right doctrine and if that right doctrine leads to right action, more likely than not, we're genuinely saved. 
But what we believe has to be backed up in how we act. Okay? What we believe is backed up by how we act. Right? You, could, you, could, you could say, I love my neighbor. I want to bear his burdens. I will bear his burdens. Right? But when someone comes up to you with a problem and says, Hey, brother, I need some help. Can you, can you help me walk through this problem? You're like, no, man, I don't got no time for you. If we don't have any love in our hearts for our fellow believer, if it's not evidenced in our actions, there's a good reason for us to wonder, is my statement of faith, is my proclamation of faith genuine or not? So if you're genuinely saved, your works are going to line up with what you say you believe. Now, Paul does note something curious here. As he says that the examination of one's work will give reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For some of you, you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound right. Boasting is not good. Boasting is bad. We've been told not to boast. It's prideful. And that's true, in a sense, right? Boasting generally is considered sin. It's generally related to pride. However, what we see in Romans fifteen seven and 2 Corinthians ten twelve to 18 we don't have time to look at that. You can jot that down and look at it later. Is that there is a type of boasting that is not sinful. There is a type of boasting that is not sinful. And this boasting is a boasting or telling of what God has done. Giving all the credit to God for what He has done in our lives. And that's what Paul does. In his life, in his ministry, he doesn't say, Oh no, I didn't go to all those churches. I didn't minister to all those churches and establish elders and establish disciples there. He doesn't deny that he's done those things. He recognizes, yeah, I did do those things. But not me, but God through me did those things. So he gives credit to the Lord. He even says in 2 Corinthians 10 right, that we don't boast outside of our sphere. Meaning he recognizes that what he did, it was done through God's power. Right, so all of his boasting is not about himself, but about what God has done. And so when Paul speaks about boasting here in Galatians 6, he's referring to how some people in the church were, uh, they, they had a practice these spiritually proud people, they had a practice of comparing themselves to others and boasting in their spirituality compared to other people. And these are the same spiritually proud people who refuse to bear one another's burdens. And as they compared themselves to others, these proud so-called believers believed that they were spiritually mature because <laughs> at least I don't look like brother so-and-so or at least I'm not dealing with this like sister so-and-so. They compared their growth, their maturity uh, in Christ to other people. And they said, yeah, I'm fine before God because I'm not like these people around me, all these sinners around me. I'm not like them, so I'm good. I'm good. I'm real good. That attitude sounds pretty familiar to us, doesn't it? That's the attitude of the Pharisee in Luke 18, 9-12. He's praying to God. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector over here. And then he proceeds to list all of the good deeds that he does. Right? I give tithes twice a week. 
And I do all these other things. I give alms to the poor. And you're saying, look at me. Do you doubt that I'm spiritual? Do you doubt that I'm godly? Look at all good that I do. I dress properly. I don't look like this tax collector over here. I do everything right. That's the exact attitude of the tax collector. So for for, for, for us, we ought not to have that attitude. If anything, we're trying, as we're examining ourselves, what we're trying to identify is, no, everything that I'm doing right now is only because of the grace of God. Or the fact that I'm able to, to, uh, to serve as well as I do, to, to uh, care for other people as, as much as I do, it's because of the grace of God. Right? My maturity is not determined, because, uh, determined by how I stack up compared to other people. It's determined by my actual relationship before the Lord and how faithful I am to that. See, Paul's, Paul wants us to remember that our maturity is determined by our faithfulness. Our maturity is determined by our faithfulness. Our faithfulness to see how much we actually love God. Right? To, to, to see whether our actions actually indicate that we love God when we say we do. And as we examine ourselves, right, and we say, okay, I think I love God, right? how else does that manifest itself? Well, determine how faithful you are in your love for God by seeing how much you love His Word. And I'm not saying, like, oh, well, I read my daily bread every day and I read my Bible for, you know, I read a chapter a day. No. When I say how much you love God's Word, what I mean is how much do you value your time in, in His Word? How much do you, uh, do you marinate in it and actually try to apply the things that you've learned from it? Right? Because we can, at times, say we love the Word of God, but we let it in one ear out the other. And as we examine ourselves further, right? if I love the Word of God and if I want to apply it to my life, does that love for God and His Word impact my love for people? Or does it impact my love for people? Does it impact my willingness to obey the clear commands of Scripture? And if you do well in those areas, then you can have confidence in your salvation. It's not at all related to how you stack up compared to other people in the church. Verse 5 reads this, For each one will bear his own load. Each one will bear his own load. When Paul says that each person is to bear his own load, he's not contradicting what he had previously said in verse 2, when he said that we are to bear one another's burdens. The word load is intentionally different from the word burdens, as it refers to a load that each individual is responsible to carry on their own. It would be like if we are traveling, and we bring our backpacks along, and we're responsible for our backpacks. We're responsible to carry our own backpacks and to know where our backpacks are at all times. This is not a load that you need help carrying. You can do it yourself. Because you packed it. It's your backpack. It's your stuff. You're responsible. Each person is responsible before God for how they conduct themselves in this life. God does not determine our standing before Him by how we stack up against other people. He does not grade us on a curve. 
He doesn't look at our behavior and say, well, you broke the curve, so you're good. You are in the pack with everyone else, so you get a C. You're below everyone else, so you get an F. He doesn't grade us on a curve. He, he grades us uh, according to our stewardship. And we don't, so we don't have to fight to outdo one another in love and good deeds. Or we should spur one another on in love and good deeds. But we don't need to fight as if my fighting to be better than you spiritually is going to give me better standing before God. God sovereignly gives each one of us our own load to carry. And he's going to determine or judge our amount of reward that he will give us according to our faithful stewardship of what he has given us. Each one of us has our own load. We're responsible for bearing that load. We're responsible for bearing one another's burdens. We help one another with burdens, but we also have our own loads that we are personally responsible for. So, brothers and sisters, let us strive to be faithful before the Lord with what He has given us by loving Him with all of our hearts and allowing that love for Him to influence the way that we love others. In this life, we will all face occasions in our lives where our own strength will not be enough to help us perform a task. Whether the task is physically lifting heavy objects and moving them, or battling sin, we all need help from someone to take on these burdens so that we can get that work done. This morning we saw how spirit-filled Christians have three responsibilities to fulfill in our lives. We have the responsibility to restore restore others when they are caught up in sin, to right relationship with God and with others. We also have the responsibility to help each other by bearing one another's burdens, since we can't do it ourselves. And finally, we have the responsibility before the Lord to walk faithfully according to His Word and His sovereign plan for our lives. And as much as some of us might like to think that we are independent of one another, even though we are part of a church. What we are reminded of today is that being a part of the body means that we all have a purpose. We all have a function within the body. None of us are truly independent of one another. As we're reminded in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all of us suffer with it. If one member is honored, all of us rejoice with it. Every Christian Every Christian has a responsibility before God to obey Him and to take care of one another. So, let us not be like those who think that we're exempt from this ministry, exempt from obedience to this command, because we're all called to do it. And as we bear one another's burdens, let us also remember that we do so with a heart of compassion, as we show each other the same compassion that our God has shown us. And with that, let's close with our final song.